Do you ever struggle with remembering details from your travels? Then I've got something special for you. How would you like a better way to keep track of all the things you see and experience in Scotland? A way to keep those special memories and all the details fresh for years to come. My new Scotland travel journal might just be what you need. It includes daily journaling prompts to help you start writing about your day, lots of space for doodling and notes, prompts to reflect on your trip overall, and suggestions for things to do that help you make more meaningful connections with Scotland. There's also inspiration for your travel bucket list, a map to draw your route, space to keep track of your travel details, and some Gaelic and Scottish phrases to try while you're here. All you have to do is print out the journal, fold the pages in half and start writing. The Scotland Travel Journal is the perfect companion for your upcoming trip to Scotland. Find it in the Watch Me See online shop or visit the link in the show notes. And now, let's get on with the show. Hello there. Just a quick note before we start to let you know about a wee mistake in today's episode. My guest Lisa Williams and I are talking about Arthur's Seat and Lisa mentions a tribe that lived in the southeast of Scotland before the Roman invasion of Britain. She says Iseni tribe, but it's actually the Votadini tribe. They had a large hill fort on Arthur's Seat from where they defended their territory. They also had settlements in East Lothian, along the Berwickshire coast and dotted around the Scottish borders. I'll pop a link in the show notes if you want to read more about them. And now, let's get to the episode. Hello there, and welcome to Wild for Scotland, a podcast full of inspiring stories from Scotland. I'm your host, Cathy Camleitner. Wild for Scotland helps you connect with Scotland and dream about future adventures. I'll tell you immersive stories to whisk you away, share some of my top tips for your own Scotland trip, and introduce you to inspiring locals and their stories. So lean back and enjoy. Let's travel to Scotland. Welcome back for another episode in this new season of Wild for Scotland which is all about the people of Scotland and their stories. In last week's episode, I took you along on a walking tour of Edinburgh and told you some of the city's black history. You heard about some of the stories our guide Lisa Williams shared on this tour and how they can change the way we look at the city. Still historic, still beautiful, but overall a more rounded picture of a city with many layers. Today, I'm speaking with Lisa Williams to hear more about her journey. When I started thinking about potential guests for this season, Lisa was at the top of my wish list, so I couldn't be happier that she took the time to speak with me. Lisa is the founder of the Edinburgh Caribbean Association, which promotes Caribbean culture in Scotland. And since 2018, she's been running Black History Walks Edinburgh. If you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, I recommend you go back and do so before listening to my conversation with Lisa. The interview does make sense on its own, but the story will give you a taste of the walking tour experience that we talk about in this episode. And now, let's dive in. This is Lisa Williams from Edinburgh. 
Hello. Hello. <laughs> um, so I'm sitting here with Lisa Williams at Egg and Co on George Street in Edinburgh. We've just done the Black History Walk around the new town and a bit of the old town of Edinburgh and learned about the black history of the city of Scotland and important black people who came and lived here, who are from here or who came and visited here as well and a lot of Lisa's research about that. Um, can you start us off by introducing yourself, about your name, your preferred pronouns and what you do? Okay, so I'm Lisa Williams, um, my pronouns are she, her and I'm the founder of the Edinburgh Caribbean Association. I set up almost seven years ago now to get people together of Caribbean heritage but also to promote Caribbean culture in Scotland. And one of the things that's really grown out of this is my research into particularly Caribbean historical connections with Scotland um, and looking at black people who've been here over the centuries in, in Edinburgh specifically. And But we do all sorts of exciting events as well, everything from film to poetry to also working in schools as well with everything from dance to music to amazing Caribbean foods that teachers also get very excited about too. Fantastic. Before we dive into the Caribbean Association and also the, the tours that you are doing, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you and what brought you to Edinburgh, how long you've been here and kind of what brought you to the point where we are now today? Sure. Well, I grew up actually in the south of England. You can probably hear that from my accent. And I lived there till I was 22. My mother's from Grenada in the southern part of the Caribbean. And when I was, when I was a child and when I was a teenager, I was very fortunate because my father was a pilot. We used to get the chance to fly to the Caribbean very often. So probably go, you know, sometimes two, three times a year. I would go and spend time in Barbados and St. Lucia when I was young. We've got family in Trinidad. I used to go and spend time with them. I probably attended my first Trinidad carnival when I was three and I was on my <laughs> uncle's shoulders watching the parade. Um, so having that connection with the Caribbean growing up was very important for me. As a teenager, I spent many a summer in Antigua as well, which was fantastic. So, um, I think for me, going to university at 19, one of the subjects I was studying was African and Asian studies, which is obviously a huge area. But what was fantastic, I was studying psychology in the context of um, the history, the economics, the development, the literature of the Caribbean and other places in Asia and Africa, so that we're looking at British history with very specific viewpoints. And I was really lucky enough to be exposed to scholars from ex-colonies to get a different perspective on how we think about things here. And that kind of gave me a foundation for going forward when I left university. Um, when I was 22, I went out to live in Grenada because my parents had moved back and I decided I was going to go too. I wasn't going to be left out of that. And then having a career and my family in Grenada, one of the things I did was work in primary school and learning about Scottish history, Scottish military heroes as part of that syllabus that I hadn't necessarily come across in my schooling here. Also, one of the things I did was set up a community tourism and heritage organisation. So before Airbnb, we kind of were the Grenada Airbnb <laughs> and people would stay in the community. So 
getting Grenadian people to really value their culture, but also to start to look at some of the historical links with Britain in a lot more detail, how that affected Grenada and the landscape. So I used to actually do historical tours in Grenada. I used to take people around on buses. We used to go into the countryside. So for me, coming to Edinburgh just over 10 years ago with my children, one of the things I wanted to do was to set up an association where we're also in contact with people of Caribbean heritage here, because I'm not many of us. I kept finding people that were isolated. One of the reasons we chose Edinburgh, I suppose, was coming here on a holiday from the Caribbean, being quite enchanted with Edinburgh, to be honest. And I remember one day a man walking through Holyrood Park and he had a very full beard, he had a kilt, and he was walking very confidently along. And in the Caribbean, you always greet people in the street. I always say, good morning, and how are you? You never walk past somebody without um, greeting them. And that was a very normal thing for my kids to do when they first arrived here. And, you know, when you get to Scotland, not everybody does that, especially in a big city. So I was so impressed when this man almost like walked out of the mist, like a movie, walked out of the mist in Hollywood Park, dressed in this kilt with this big beard. And he said, good morning, good morning to you, with a big smile. And I was like, I really like this place. <laughs> and I think if anywhere, if we're going to settle in the UK, come back, um, also have opportunities for the children or two. I really like Edinburgh. Something about it's quite magical, quite special. And then finding out how many Caribbean connections there are to Edinburgh as well. It's been amazing. What was it like to adjust to living here? I can imagine the climate is very different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when actually one of my, when I first was first living here and I told a, a man on the Royal Mile that we'd moved from the Caribbean, he was like, are you on the run from Interpol? I'm like, why would you leave the Caribbean and come to Scotland? Are you crazy? He said, the weather, you're not going to be able to deal with it. And I said, oh, I'll be fine. Absolutely fine. And then it got to February. The first February was fine. First February was a novelty. Yes, we were cold. Yes, it took two years to adjust to the climate. And then my poor son was probably wearing hats and scarves and full shoes and a whole uniform. And it took him for the first time. And it probably took him about an hour to get dressed in the morning, age of eight, because grappling with mittens and things he'd never seen before. Um, and asking me, mommy, Why am I going to school in the middle of the night? Because I brought him here when, in December <laughs> and it's pitch black. He's having to walk to school in the dark with all of this uncomfortable clothing. So it took a little while to adjust and for me to readjust as opposed to those things being back in the UK. And also adjusting to Caribbean people are quite friendly, quite boisterous, quite loud. Um, very used to, like I said, greeting people in the street or walking into a, a room of people, even if you don't know them. So you might walk into a doctor's office and you walk in, good morning, and everyone replies, good morning. So sometimes I'd be addressing people in maybe groups that I was teaching or going into a school and saying good morning and not getting that response. And I would sometimes make it a bit of a joke saying in the Caribbean, people reply and they answer. But that's just not the culture here, so it's getting used to those things. The other thing it's getting used to as well is a certain level of politeness in Edinburgh society. And sometimes I'll tell you having a conversation with somebody or maybe bring up matters on a history tour that people found a little bit um, 
unusual, something they haven't really thought about before, worried about causing offence and then not saying anything. So being met with silence and um, taking a while for me to understand where that silence was coming from. So mm. these different kind of cultural mores that people have. What I love about Scotland and what I really enjoy about Edinburgh, one of the reasons why we chose Edinburgh to live is because of the, the culture that the cultural elements here that are still really strong and that people have fought to hold on to in lots of ways as well. So I think it's exciting that Scotland's really making an effort to bring back Gaelic. And that's been even on the tours. People are telling me how their grandmother was um, punished at school for not speaking Gaelic and um, the effort to get that back. The music here, I think, is amazing. So one of the opportunities that I had when I first came was staying with a friend he used to come and visit us at Grenada and he was one who encouraged us to come and live in Edinburgh, choose Edinburgh for us to stay. And he would put on house concerts in his living room. So when I was first staying there um, in my first couple of months, we'd have all sorts of traditional Scottish folk bands setting up in the, in the living room. So I had a first hand opportunity to hear those musicians, top class musicians. Um, and really kind of understand about traditional Scottish folk culture and the language and the music. And again, I found it very enchanting and how people here have made such an effort to to hold on to those, those things. Mm. And then also looking at the connections with the Caribbean, how the Scottish fiddle will show up in certain islands in the Caribbean and be part of Caribbean culture as well. Oh, that's really fascinating. I didn't know that. Mm. I think music is such an interesting element of national heritage and, and, and identity as well and so many things are conveyed and and passed on through songs poems music so yeah that's a really lovely way of meeting or falling in love with scotland i guess mm. was the moment when you walked through hollywood park you mentioned with the man in the kilt was that a moment you knew this was going to be right or <laughs> was there more moments like this where you knew okay this is home now this is where i feel like that's where i'm supposed to be there have been a few occasions, actually. I think, for example, my son, when he was about 12 or 13, and he was on a train going to a concert in Glasgow with my daughter, and people were... Somebody asked him, I think, where he was from. And he started to give this very convoluted answer. I was born in Grenada, and I came to Edinburgh. And they just literally, the Scottish people who had asked him to turn around said, well, you're Scottish now, you're Scottish, you're one of us. And don't let anyone tell you any different. And he felt quite happy about that, you know, because that's not always happened. Yeah, that kind of openness, that progressive streak in Scottish culture, I really appreciate. And the fact that, for example, the Scottish government's really encouraging us to look at our interconnected past in a way that isn't necessarily encouraged by the government down in England. And it gives us a certain freedom up here to have conversations um, about this kind of history and also to officially from the top give a welcome to people from, from other countries. doesn't matter if you're born in Scotland or if your parents are from Scotland and you've decided you've chosen Scotland as your home, then officially you are welcome to be Scottish and if you identify as Scottish you are Scottish. Yeah there's this very beautiful term or concept of the new Scot mm. who it doesn't matter like you see where you were born where you're from you've chosen if, if you live in Scotland and that's where you 
feel like you want to be and, and that's what you've chosen as your home or you know ended up here and now have chosen as your home then you're Scottish I, I really love that sentiment as well and mm. I, I haven't really come across it in many other places mm. certainly not where I'm from I'm from Austria we, I wish we had a concept like this right at home. yeah it's very very important absolutely and I also think that it's interesting when you hear your children speaking in an accent it's different from your own Mm-hmm. So, going to Grenada, of course, my mum's Grenadian, I grew up with the accent, there's words that I understand. But then when you hear your children speaking in an accent that's not yours, it's quite, it takes a little while to adjust to that, something mm-hmm. can feel quite strange. But uh, I suppose when you're growing up in a household where you've got people from different cultures, you often switch from one to the other, depending on who you're talking to. My daughter's accent would change, depending on who she's speaking with. But then sometimes hearing my, especially my daughter, speaking to Scottish people in certain contexts and her accent suddenly becomes very, very strong. The dialect, the words she's using, like really going into Scots, um, we wouldn't necessarily be speaking that way with, with us in the house. And that's quite an interesting one, realising how, how much the children have absorbed of Scottish culture and language and how much... That is part of their identity. And when often when we leave Scotland, we feel quite patriotic towards mm-hmm. Scotland in a strange way, right? So I grew up in England, and like I said, lived in the Caribbean for a long time. But when we leave Scotland, we do feel gra- we gravitate to Scottish people. We get excited when we hear a Scottish accent in London. We kind of miss the accent and then so happy to hear it when you get to the airport and, or train station in London. You start hearing folks about to get on the train to Edinburgh, Glasgow. It's like, that's my people, you know. I have exactly the same experience every time I sit at an airport and hear the people, you know, about to board the flight to Edinburgh, Glasgow. I feel so happy. Yeah. And even though I might have not noticed that I'm homesick for Glasgow, I know I'm going home now and I feel so, so warm inside and I'm so glad I'm not the only one yeah <laughs> and your accent is has a lot of Scottish inflection right it does I'm, yeah. I'm a chameleon I've yeah. uh, managed to fool quite a lot of people with yeah. my accent I'm not doing it on purpose no. it's my I couldn't do an accent on purpose let's mm. put it that way but living here and being surrounded by Scottish people working with Scottish people you know it's just yeah. something I've, I've taken on exactly. just like in any other situation I would probably sound Canadian if I lived in Canada Mm. or something like that but yeah there's a lot of I think you can actually take that on because there is that openness and Mm. so you can feel patriotic to an extent or proud or Mm. or just very closely connected and tied on an emotional and internal level Mm. Um, that's what I love about it as well I mean maybe patriotic is the wrong word because in a way I probably think of myself as more of a global citizen, mm-hmm. like if anyone asked me, just because I've had experiences and heritage from different, so many different places in our family. Um, and I think sometimes we have to be careful also about potentially dividing ourselves mm-hmm. by too much of an allegiance to one country over another as well. So we do have to watch for that also. That is true. That is true. Something that I read before our conversation and you have also touched upon there was you know the very interesting context of the work that you do about black history and really highlighting that history and and, and making people rethink what 
they think they know about mm-hmm. our past and, and, and our society and culture. And that has a very special context in Scotland, like you mentioned, that has also experienced a form of cultural loss mm-hmm. and oppression. You know, certain things being prohibited here that prohibited people from expressing their cultural identity in the 18th and, and 19th century. And I'm just wondering what that feels like to do it to, I don't want to ask you what if questions, but you know, I do wonder, do you think you would have done this kind of work or would the, your work look similar if you weren't in Scotland? You know, what, what does Scotland mean for the work that you do and that context for the work that you do? Mm, that's a good question because I do think the context is really unique. I can't think of many other places that have this history of semi-colonization. I wouldn't say totally colonized for a few reasons, but people have gone through experiences that in some ways can connect or be seen as similar to um, the kinds of experiences that people went through during the Middle Passage, African people in the Caribbean, and struggling to hold on to really important parts of your identity, whether that's religion, whether that's the clothing that you wear, your language. Language is a key one. So language and music are key ones. What I don't want to do is make an exact equivalence with those two kinds of experiences, because we know that people that got caught up in the chattel slavery system are going through a kind of experience that is the most extreme. Right? But I do think what it can do is encourage empathy in Scottish people. If this history is approached well, it can encourage empathy for people to have a certain amount of understanding for that experience because, for example, Gaelic was banned and people were punished. And what kind of what does that do to your psyche? What does that do to your sense of identity? This 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 these attempts to reclaim identity that has people have struggled to hold on to here. And also the, the the pain that has come from the history of the clearances, people losing their land, people being evicted by force and put onto boats. So I think that there is a level of understanding that can come because people know about those experiences and are still in the consciousness, particularly people in the Highlands, for example, less so um, around um, Edinburgh further south. But I think one of the things that's important to note is that Scottish history itself hasn't really been told fully in schools and it was a very Anglo-centric curriculum until a few decades ago. And there's been many efforts to really make it much more relevant to Scotland and tell the story of these things, which are also painful for Scotland's past. So because of that, that also means that a lot of the international connections and Scottish role in colonialism hasn't been taught either. And because people have just gone through a stage of really making efforts to reclaim this culture and and history that's been hidden here or ignored here or omitted here for whatever reason, it's sometimes then difficult to be able to talk about the kinds of histories that are involving Scots who are involved in oppression abroad. So sometimes that part can be hard. Um, I think it's changing quite a bit because Scottish historians have been working on this for a few decades now, but particularly in the last 10, 20 years. 
there's also many Caribbean scholars who've been working on these connections for years. And I think sometimes where that, that's the, the disconnect because people here are not always exposed to Caribbean scholarship around this history as well. So I think one of the things I do and I want to do is really encourage conversations in Scotland and the Caribbean and bring people together. So whether that's school children, twinning schools, and having these conversations with their peers, which I think would be amazing, but also creating opportunities for exchanges where young people could come from the Caribbean, come to Scotland, maybe go up to one of the castles that has connections with the Caribbean, maybe their ancestors own plantations in the Caribbean, and now they want to do something that will um, help the development of Caribbean people now. We don't choose our ancestors, we don't choose the past, we've got no control over what happened, but we do have a lot of control over the kinds of things we can do now in terms of telling the truth, whatever that might be, be different perspectives within that, and sometimes there's information that's still missing and still will have to change as new information becomes available. But also about this work is for healing, it's for reconciliation, it's about creating better relationships. Because sometimes folks in other places will know the history of Scots in the colonies in a way that Scottish people here just really don't know anything about at all. And often when you open their eyes, they're quite shocked by it or amazed that they didn't know about it before and interested in finding it about more. So for me, it's about bringing these conversations together and trying to create opportunities where people can keep these conversations going, but also encourage people to come to Scotland to hear different stories that aren't always told. So what's exciting for me is that sometimes you'll get people booking all the way from America. There might be an African-American person interested in the African-American presence in Edinburgh. You might get people of Jamaican descent who come up in a big group from London. They come to Scotland for the very first time. And these are people in their 50s, maybe yet older. They've never thought about coming to Scotland. And this is something that hooks them. Oh, I want to go up and hear about all the connections with Jamaica, for example. So what's exciting for me is getting a whole cross-section of different people who tend to show up on the walks for all sorts of different reasons. People that maybe would never have met otherwise, mm-hmm. and they have the opportunity to meet one another, to have conversations, and to be able to, even within those two hours, change that perspective because they're then exposed to different kinds of conversations. So with that, we're really diving right into the topic of the walks. And I would love for all the listeners, if you've not listened to last week's episode yet, you can listen to last week's episode to hear a story from my perspective about participating in one of the Black History Walks here in Edinburgh with Lisa. Um, But Lisa, for anyone who hasn't listened to it yet, can you give us an idea of what these walking tours are all about, how they came into being, how you started them, and what people can expect from a walk with you in Edinburgh? Absolutely. So the walks take two hours normally. Um, sometimes there are public walks that you can access to say through Eventbrite. Sometimes there are commission walks that I do specifically for smaller groups. So we start at the Belfort Monument in the area where the first buildings in the new town went up at the end of the 18th century. So it's famous for being this architectural masterpiece, Georgian masterpiece of architecture. And so many of the statues around there can tell these stories. Um, so we make our way through the new town. We sometimes visit a graveyard and 
Then we make our way through Princess Street Gardens, which is particularly nice, but it's sunny. The sun does shine in Edinburgh sometimes, <laughs> it does, I promise you. Um, and then we make our way up the mound past the, the National Gallery, and we talk about some of the people who were living around that area in, let's say, the 18th and 19th century. So we, we have groups limited to 20 people maximum, and that normally it's great if we have, I don't know, let's say up to about 15 people, because then we're able to have conversations and ask questions along the way, which is really nice. And they came about really, um, there's a few factors, I suppose. One being inspired by Sir Jeff Palmer's work and doing talks in Edinburgh, talking about the links with the Caribbean, and that really opened my eyes to the very specific links that we have here. Having a general knowledge, of course, about Britain, the Caribbean, and the important things that happen, but linking it directly to here. Then also being part of a programme called Recovering Scotland's Black History, which was run with Africa Motion Film Festival in conjunction with the Coalition for Racial Equality and Rights, of course, in Glasgow. So there have been walks um, talking about Caribbean enslavement and also slavery in Virginia, been running in Glasgow for quite a while. I went on one of those walks, I was very inspired, it was really interesting. And then I thought, why is no one doing anything like this in Edinburgh? It doesn't make any sense because there are so many links. And I had been doing some research on my own. This really inspired me to, to start the walks. And then I thought I would take it maybe 18 months to do research, to sketch it out. And then I did lots of test runs with friends as well. So friends who are artists, historians, people that have lived here for ages, lots of different people, different ages. And we did a test run to figure out where would be the most interesting spots, um, what would allow us to tell a whole range of stories and also be kind of manageable mm. within a centre of, of Edinburgh um, that we could fit into that two hours. Also bearing in mind people who don't, who maybe have difficulty walking, making sure it's also accessible, so someone's in a wheelchair, then um, making sure that you can also take a route where nobody's excluded. That's really important for me. One of the things I want to do coming up is to employ a, a sign language interpreter mm. who can also make sure that people from the deaf community who use that as a main form of communication, that um, they're included as well. So... These walks started out really for Black History Month in 2018 and I've had some support from the Coalition for Racial Equality and Rights to help me to um, create some maps as well with some of the information, photographs of people that we talk about too. And then they really took off. So I did some in Black History Month. People came along and you could see people's minds being quite blown by it. I was very overexcited and the tours went on for quite a long time so I wanted to tell everyone every bit of information I'd found out. So it's about um, trimming them down to something that is, um, you know, manageable, nice afternoon now. You could do it in the morning so you finish at lunchtime somewhere um, in the old town or maybe you do one on a, in the afternoon, you're going to go have a nice tea afterwards somewhere in Edinburgh. And often in buildings that directly to connect to the history where you've got black people here in Edinburgh from the past who maybe had a business there or maybe they spoke in that place so that brings another dimension for people who were then spending time in those places. Can you recall any moments 
where maybe someone came along you know you you said people had their minds blown by the tour mm. was there ever a, a moment that stands out to you where someone came along and it was just completely unexpected to them what they heard or how it impacted them and that you would be comfortable sharing with us absolutely i mean all sorts of things i had a person uh, a man and a family a few months ago and he said he's Edinburgh born, been to university here, worked here. And then he said to me in the middle of the tour, I have to apologize for my silence. And I said, why? He said, are you okay? And he said, this tour is blowing my mind so much. It's forcing me to go away and reevaluate every single thing that I've learned about my city. And it's going to take me a while, but I really thank you for this because this is forcing me to have a whole new perspective on everything. And I've had several people say something similar. So at the beginning of the walk, I do tell people at the beginning that it can be quite an emotional journey for lots of different reasons. And sometimes it's a sense of surprise for people that have lived here all their life and they can't quite fathom how they don't know any of this information. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be very impactful for a lot of people. It's nice for me working with young people, let's say 12 and 13 year olds, who are just learning about some of this history in school. They're asking their own questions and they're also creating their own connections. And they're also not afraid to ask questions either. They're not, it doesn't matter for them if they don't know, Mm. which is really quite nice, refreshing. Yeah, I think one of the stories that stands out to me and that, Mm. you know, I also mentioned in last week's story episode, is the story of Malvina Wells mm-hmm. and her grief with the view of Edinburgh Castle. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's such an impactful and beautiful spot to be in, mm-hmm. in terms of the location of it, mm-hmm. but then also the story about her and people like her, you know, it's just stories that are not told enough and that we don't know about enough. And it's important to hear all the terrible stories, but it's also important to hear the stories of people who've thrived in their lives and and, and in what Mm. they were doing. And it isn't all just doom and gloom, but there are also really outstanding people to learn about and hear about. And that that was one of the Mm. things, I don't think it surprised me because I had read so much about in advance, but it it wasn't a surprising impact it had on me, Mm. I think. Um, I really enjoyed, that's maybe one of my favorite stories on the the walking tour. Right. And I think you're not alone there because that that story of her life does tend to have an emotional impact, particularly for teenage, but particularly girls, teenage girls who maybe are of the same age of when mm. she was brought here. Imagine it's very easy for them to imagine themselves in that situation. But of course, we don't know all of the aspects of her life and story. Mm. And sometimes, I'm, you know, I want to make sure that we're also allowing room for knowing that we don't know the whole story. We don't know if she wanted to have her own family. We don't know mm. if she wanted to get married. We don't mm. know if she wanted to leave. But we do know that she goes back home for a while and spends several months. And we know that she decides to then come back to the family as well. So she's very attached to them. They're very attached to her as well. Um, and when she dies, actually, they absolutely... It's very important for the family that she's honoured. So her the announcement of her death goes into the newspaper, one of the children of the family who's older by that point saying, you must make sure that she's respected and honoured in this kind of way. I want to send a bouquet of flowers also to the funeral. And it's unusual for uh, 
it's like you say, to walk into a, a graveyard and see somebody honoured in this kind of way who was born enslaved, mm. and there would have been many people here, maybe in, in worse situations, who are here would have been buried in, a, in an unmarked grave. I'm sure there's many of those, those people as well. But like you say, what's interesting about her story is that we do have a beautiful portrait of her, for example. We know about, we know the fact we have paintings. The fact that we, there are so many details about her life makes people able to feel emotionally mm. engaged. It humanizes the story, which is what I'm trying to do as much as possible. Absolutely. And I think that's also one of the powerful things that you do in the tours, you know, and you see this in the, on the tour. Yes, we talk about individuals, but we have to contextualize them mm. and think about the whole movement and the community around them. But it is very helpful speaking about individuals, like you see, to humanize these stories and, and the fate of people and to really start and create empathy and, and develop an understanding for what was going on and how, what to do with it now, mm. so to say, from our perspective now. Yeah, absolutely. Let's take a quick break to hear a story about our sponsors. What are some of the things you want people to take away from a Black History Walk in Edinburgh? A few things. One, that they had a great time, tell everyone else about it. Two, that they, People are aware of how long people of African descent have been present in Scotland. So coming up to close to 2,000 years minimum, talking about the Roman period. Because sometimes you talk to folks and you will ask them, when do you think black people first came to Scotland? And some people will say, I don't know, 1990s. So you don't have to go much further back, because again, people don't know. That's really important. And that also gives a sense of belonging, I think, to... Afro-Scots, you know, Scottish people of African descent. So actually we've also been here for a very, very long time. The other thing I want people to take away is understanding the level of resistance that came from people in Scotland and people in Edinburgh to injustices happening around the world and how often people are working in solidarity with people abroad in really powerful ways that, you know, they're about uplifting and respecting those other people and it's taking a cue from those people rather than assuming that um, they know best mm. and they're assisting them in a quite patronising way. And there were so many people who were from Edinburgh who were operating in a completely different way. Um, and I think people were surprised by that, particularly women. And that's something I also want to make sure that, you know, women are obscured of all different backgrounds in this history a lot. And we had to look a little bit harder sometimes, dig a little bit further and also make sure that we mention their sometimes unrecognised labour in mm. all of this as well, you know. So the, the things I want people to take away are a sense of inspiration from the past when people have come together from all different backgrounds to, to work together for justice and work for freedom and work for the betterment of everybody. Mm. And that's obviously very re relevant today as well to not lose hope and to also find inspiration and yeah hope i guess is 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 maybe the best word to to use that it, it's worth doing the work and there is other people who are interested in we're not alone it's not pointless there is actually something that can be done yes it's hard yes it takes time 
yes, there will be people who are against it. But like you say, it's that sense of solidarity, the com- finding the community and finding the, the strength together to work against it, to do something about it. Absolutely. And for me, in a way, it's a sense of not letting people down from the past who have put their lives at stake to make things better for everybody and to carry that work forward in whatever way we can. If we are visiting Edinburgh, we are obviously in the very fortunate situation of having your walks available and, and hopefully many people can join you in the future going forward as well. But I'm wondering if we were to visit another place where maybe there isn't a Lisa Williams and there isn't a Black History Walk mm-hmm. available, how can we try and engage with Black history in those locations in a new way? Or how can we learn more about Black history in locations where there isn't such a valuable resource already existing? Do you have any tips, any resources that you can share, maybe particularly about Scotland or, or the UK, but also in general? One of the things I encourage folks to do here is if they are, I don't know, looking at a particular historical material object in a building or a particular painting, or if it's something that fits into the time period where Scots are very much involved abroad in the colonies and in the Caribbean particularly, to use those as opportunities to start to look at the other side of the story So you might take a particular date, for example, and say, okay, what's going on in the world on this date? What's going on in India? What's going on in the Caribbean? What's going on in Africa? And if you can start to broaden your perspective, you might very well find links that connect to to Scotland. The other thing I think is becoming more and more easy to do is to access the archives, because the people who run the archives here are very keen to open it up to people who aren't necessarily trained historians or or archivists. And there's a great movement towards that at the moment. Um, I think one of the things you can do also is, there's a few things that you you could look towards doing. So for example, a game changer has been the slave compensation list that shows up um, and all the research that's been done by University College London. So, so much of this stuff has become more and more available online. If you start to look for names, particularly, names can lead you down a whole rabbit warren of research, right? So, you might track a particular family. There are certain families that will would have been involved abroad, and you'll, you'll find often in the very same family, you've got one sibling going off to India, you've got another one going off to the Caribbean very much these histories are intertwined. So I think it's about maybe just looking at a particular family that's come from a particular place and then checking to see, oh, where did they go? What were they involved in? And following that that line. And amazing what you can come up with, even in the tiniest of villages. One of the ways I think a lot of people connect with Scotland, especially before their trips, is obviously through books. I would love to ask you a few of your favourite Scottish books that kind of inspire you and you think would be a good read for people to read up on Scottish history and life and culture and so on. Absolutely. Um, And I can tell you about some writers that in a way still connect to this history, I suppose. So you have the kind of unsung Scottish Jane Austen. For those of you who love Jane Austen and watch all of those period films that connect to her stories, there's a woman called Susan Ferrier who comes from Edinburgh. We're actually just a few doors down from her house here on George Street, which is now the printing press bar. 
So if you ever get a chance to come to Edinburgh, go to the Printing Press Bar and know that you're in the house of Susan Ferrier, who wrote these really interesting um, kind of social critiques of middle-class life in Edinburgh in the early 19th century. So a book like The Inheritance, for example. You've also got modern writers like Louise Welsh, who's a, a crime writer based in Glasgow, and I'm excited to read her new book, which also connects to Glasgow's colonial past. And there's also a writer called Jenny Fagan, who I really love, actually, who came out with a book last year called Luck and Booth, and that's set mainly in the, the old town here. So I think that would be an exciting read for people coming into to Edinburgh and hearing about mystery and intrigue that they'll think about as they're walking around the, the, the old town. A few titles there to add to my reading list as well. Fantastic, thank you. Um, and then I have another question, and you're probably gonna um, dive right into research mode and and give me an answer that is five hours long. But I'm gonna ask you anyways, and I'm gonna ask you to just see the first person that comes to mind. If there was a historical figure that you could spend a day with, who would it be, and why? You know, I think I would choose Anna Murray, who was the first wife of Frederick Douglass, because her voice is not heard enough. And there's very often we hear about the great men in history, and I'm paying all due respect to Frederick Douglass, but we don't always hear about the women who were from the backbone of the family and did very many important things as well, who were also unsung. So I think she's the person who I would want to speak to about when Frederick Douglass came to Edinburgh. How was it for her when he was away for almost two years and how she's trying to keep everything together in his absence? So Anna Murray, who became Anna Murray Douglas, would be my choice. Fantastic. Thank you very much. That was much easier than I thought. I thought you would you would spiral and, and mention way too many people. I, that, that was very good. <laughs> and what a beautiful reason as well. And I think you're so right that, you know, there are people we always hear about and it's the people, I don't want to say behind them, but next to them, yeah. around them that probably have a lot of interesting yeah. stories to tell yeah. um, and interesting perspectives to share as well. Yeah. yeah. I love that idea. <laughs> okay, last question, yeah. final question for today. Uh -huh. You can talk about somewhere in Edinburgh or Scotland in general, but I would love to know a place in Edinburgh or Scotland that makes you happy. Where makes me happy? I think nature makes me happy. Um, I, I tell you what makes me happy is Arthur's Seat, the mountain that we have here right in the middle of Edinburgh. That's one of the reasons I moved here as well. To have a mountain like that in the middle of a capital city is wild. And it's a place when you go there, you can almost feel the spirits of the, the people, the tribe, that the Iceni tribe that was there hundreds of years ago with their reindeer in the park. You can think about the people that have walked through that park over the centuries. Um, and it's a very anchoring, grounding, beautiful place to go. It's literally right on the doorstep. If you have one day to visit Edinburgh, you can go there very, very easily. If you're going to see the Royal Palace, you can just step out and you're minutes away from this amazing hill that you can walk up if you're able and you've got the energy. You can get up to the top and you have this fantastic view of Edinburgh. So that is a very special place that always makes me feel good when I'm walking through there. And it's a place that's very easy to get to and enjoy. 
I love Ashley as well. It's such a beautiful walk and particularly on a sunny day or for sunset, it's just a perfect place to visit. Get a view of the entire city, the sea, look out to Fife um, and Leith on the coast here as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful place to visit. So a very, very good choice, I think. Right, that was it for our conversation with Lisa Williams. Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time um, and joining us for a conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. For listeners, I hope you will check out Lisa's tours in, in Edinburgh, her walks in Edinburgh. Lisa, what's the best way for people to kind of stay in touch with you or find out more about you and your walks in Edinburgh? Two really easy ways. Those folks who are on Instagram can follow me on Carib Scott. So if you think of half of the Caribbean and half of Scotland, um, look for Carib Scott. You can also go on to www.caribscott.org. That's C-A-R-I-B-S-C-O-T um, org. And you can sign up for a newsletter. So if you're planning a trip to Edinburgh, you can see what events are coming up. You can also see links of where to, to join a tour. Um, even if a tour isn't happening when you're planning to come, we may be able to put on a special tour for you. So please feel free to get in touch. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Brilliant. big thank you to Lisa Williams for being the first guest on this season of Wild for Scotland and of course for all of her amazing work telling some of the hidden histories of Edinburgh and changing the way we engage with Scottish history. I hope you enjoyed learning some of this history too and it has inspired you to check out Lisa's Black History Walks whether you're living in Edinburgh or planning a visit. You can connect with Lisa on Instagram at caribscott and find out more about the Edinburgh Caribbean Association on caribscott.org. There you can also sign up for her newsletter to find out about upcoming tours, talks and special events. The links are all in the show notes. And with this, I send you off to dream about your own trip to Edinburgh. We'll be back with another story episode next week. And this time, we're heading to Scotland's other large city and my hometown, Glasgow. I hope you'll tune in again. Thank you so much for listening today. Hit subscribe if you want to make sure you never miss an episode or sign up for our newsletter to get alerts, peeks behind the scenes and additional information about the places and topics we cover on this season. You'll find the links in the show notes. Wild for Scotland is part of the Tremula Network, adventure and outdoor podcasts of the beaten path. The show is written and hosted by me, Kathy Kamleitner. Thanks to Fran Turowskis, who's the co-producer and editor and does the sound design. And to Michelle Payne, who helps with transcripts and social media. Podcast art is by Lizzie Vaughan Knight, the Tartan Trailburner, and all original music is composed by Bruce Wallace. Until next week, when we travel to a different place in Scotland. If you're still here, listening all the way to the very end, it means you've probably got your hands full. So let me take this opportunity to remind you that I don't just write immersive travel stories. I also plan unforgettable itineraries for Scotland, and it's never been easier to follow one of my routes. Head to watchmesee.com forward slash shop.
to browse my ready-made Scotland itineraries and turn your travel dreams into reality.